to Policy Wonk. I'm Joe. And I'm Kale. Joe, what are you talking about today? Kale, oh, so today we have a very special guest. We have Senator uh, Nikki Antonio uh, joining us today. And we have, let's just, let's just jump right in. I'm very excited to um, talk to the Senator today. So Kale, if you want to kick us off. So I met you probably for the first time a long time ago on Cleveland State's <laughs> campus, it feels like, but I really got to know you a little more when I took a class that went to the state house and you told us a little bit about your story about how you got into the position where you are. So briefly give us a rundown who you are, how you got here, and uh, we'll go from there. <laughs> okay. Uh, who I am. I am currently the Senate Democratic leader. I also serve in the Senate in District 23, um, which is Lakewood, Cleveland, Bratnall, Parma and Parma Heights. Um, I'm in my sec. I've just started this year, my second term in the Senate. I served eight years in the House. And before that, I was a um, consultant for nonprofits. I've done some county government work. I was an assistant to the mayor for community relations in the past. I ran a women's outpatient treatment program. Um, I also was a teacher for children with special needs. So I've had sort of this weird Mary Poppins kind of uh, life, which has been awesome, because I bring all of the things that I learned in all those different jobs uh, to my public policy job. Now, I am definitely a policy wonk. It's uh, I have my master's in public administration from Cleveland State. I have an undergrad uh, also from Cleveland State in special ed. And um, I've also served on city council in Lakewood. And my start to everything uh, was really uh, working my way through college. Uh, I would work, uh, save up some money, then take some classes, then run through my money, and then drop out for a semester or two and save up more money. And, and, and a lot of people, I'm sure, understand that. I mean, it's, it's definitely when you're working class, I grew up in Cleveland on the West side. And, um, you know, I told my mom the first time I told my mom, I wanted to go to college. She said, that's great. I hope you can figure out how to pay for it. And so, um, I did, you know, uh, working a lot of different jobs and, and I, I, because I was determined, I also found out in the last two years of going to college, the joys of actually financial aid. Uh, but back then, before FAFSA forms and everything else, um, nobody really said anything about financial aid. I knew nothing about it, um, but discovered it, thankfully. And it really helped me uh, finish in the last couple of years where I finally could go straight through. I still was working part-time, but at least it gave me the benefit of paying my tuition and some other things. So um, student aid and just assisting students, especially from low incomes, is really important to me uh, as a legislator. I um, just just really appreciate and applaud um, any student that has the 
has the path that I did. Um, I know it's a lot harder now, frankly. Um, and this was when I went to school, when there were loans, I didn't want to take any because I knew I wasn't going to make much money being a teacher. And I didn't want to have to start out uh, being saddled with debt. But I know for a lot of uh, young people now, it's the only way forward. Um, and I really wish that it wasn't as predatory as it is right now. But that's sort of my path to going through school uh, from getting to the legislature. Uh, the other, the last thing I'll say is in 2004, um, the state of Ohio, there was a ballot initiative and it was that marriage was between a man and a woman. And it was very confusing to a lot of people why there was a ballot initiative embedding into our state's constitution that marriage was between a man and a woman. They didn't understand why, why are we even voting on this? Well, it was in uh, not too stealth, but a small, small stealth uh, way to block LGBTQ people from being able to access marriage equality in the state of Ohio. Because uh, I happen to be uh, from the LGBTQ community um, and my my longtime partner and I raised two daughters in Lakewood. I was the first member of the LGBT community to be elected to city council in 2005. Um, because when it happened in 2004, I, we had friends that were leaving the state of Ohio. I said, I know, I'm not going to leave. I know what I'll do. I'll run for office. Um, and so I was the very first person from the LGBT community uh, to be elected in the Lakewood City Council, uh, first person in Northeast Ohio. And then when I went on and ran and won for the state legislature, again, uh, first person from the LGBT community and the 208 year history at that point uh, to be elected to serve. And um, so it's been a journey. So so we're going to dive right into the opposite of pleasant uh, topics. <laughs> so Senate Bill 83 passed very recently. Um, in the Senate. In the Senate, correct. In the Senate. And if it were to pass the House, what do you think this would mean for Ohio's public institutions? Well, Senate Bill 83 there, you know, first of all, there's a lot to it. In fact, I'm probably one of the people in my caucus that with along with our policy staff have really dug in and um, some of our policy staff, George Boas, for one, who's been um, in the Senate caucus and on policy staff for a long time, he has pages and pages of notes and um information about what all is in that bill. It's very, um, it's it's huge. It's very encompassing of changing a lot of things for higher ed, but the high notes of it, first of all, it prevents anyone who works for institutions of higher learning, public institutions, by the way, um, colleges and universities for their employees, uh, be they faculty or um, faculty or uh, any of the other employees of the university to be able to strike. It bans them from striking, which basically takes a huge leverage piece for um, people who are in bargaining units to be able to bargain for 
safe condition work conditions for higher wages. So that's a real problem. <laughs> the other thing, the other thing it does is it bans mandatory DEI, diversity inclusion, um, from being in any of the programming. So right now, in most colleges and universities, diversity, equity, and inclusion is programming that's mandatory. We are trying to prepare all of our students to compete in a global economy. In order to do that, you really need to understand difference and sameness and where the two intersect and learn from other people, from their cultures, from their difference in race, difference in life experience. It makes us all better, better employees, better people, better community members as young people go on uh, to pursue their career goals. So this bill says no more mandatory uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It also identify some real basic concepts and topics that come up all the time in a college classroom as being controversial. And there's a running list of all of them. Um, the one, the ones that are the most shocking to me, it includes marriage and climate. Like you can't talk about these things because they're there too, and there's a whole list of other things, race, um, all kinds of things, sexual orientation, gender. Uh, it's just, it runs the gamut of all these things that are considered and deemed to be controversial topics and therefore um, frowned upon being discussed in the classroom. And all under the guise of creating or embracing intellectual diversity. I keep putting everything in air quotes because um, this bill might as well be called George Orwell's 1984 Revisiting or legislation taken from. And if you haven't read George Orwell's 1984, I suggest you read it because... Um, these these issues around language and what kind of language and saying that in the name of diversity and inclusion, we're going to stop people from talking about diversity and inclusion is kind of, you know, a double think that George Orwell talked about in 1984. Um, the other problem with the bill, honestly, is that it it just goes into all kinds of restrictions and bans. And when all is said and done, really seems like embedding into our Ohio Revised Code a lot of um, censorship. And again, stopping people from talking about the very things that they that they indeed will gain so much more understanding, empathy, um, and practical application for their lives if they were allowed to discuss it. Um, there's also ports in there where it takes away tenure in terms of makes it more difficult for teachers to obtain and retain tenure. 
And then at any time, it can be taken away. And that more than 50% of the evaluations for faculty are arrived at through student evaluations. Now, I was a professor (laughs) at Cleveland State, an adjunct professor, and I love my students. And we had some great debates, um, but not everyone got an A in my class. And I think we all know that sometimes students believe that they are not the one responsible for their grade and that somehow the faculty, their professor had something to do uh, with being accountable for them in their grade. This bill opens up that argument into a point where a student um, can actually you know, evaluate the teacher any way they want. And that whatever that evaluation is, is going to go towards whether or not that faculty member keeps their job. Um, I I wish I could say that this is a novel and not reality. Much of this in this bill feels like it's made up by some diabolical um, authoritarian out to really destroy public education at the university and college level. Um, but that is indeed the some of the pieces of Senate Bill 83. So we, we talk about it uh, occasionally on this show. Um, and we, we it's, it's good to know that uh, you've been repeating some of the things that we've been saying about it. And it, it is it is a vile uh, piece of legislation that is it's it's just straight up censorship. So, Joe, you can go ahead with the next next question. Yeah, um, I just wanted to say, um, we talk about the bill a lot. We talked about it last episode, and I'm not going to say which professor it was to respect their privacy, but there there have been conservative professors from Cleveland State that testified that have come out against this bill. And I think that really speaks volumes to the general, like the general pushback from educators from across the spectrum about this bill is bad and it's bad for education. So I I think that's a really good point. I'm glad you brought that up because one of the premises of this bill from the sponsor is that um, colleges and public colleges and universities are just bastions of liberal ideology and that there's no room for conservative um process, uh, conservative thoughts, ideas. Uh, and I, having having taught, first of all, I don't believe that's true. And so I appreciate the fact that some conservative, who, people who identify in their uh, political ideology and identify as conservative have said, wait a minute, this could censor me too. The way this bill is written. And I think that that's a really important part of all of this. And and frankly, as far as student conversation, uh, what comes back to the professor or the instructor, um, how they're held accountable, all of this, um, it, it just makes people stop and question at every turn. Is this conversation allowed? Am I Am I following the rules? Am I outside of the rules? I mean, one of the ways I describe this and and part of the bill also says certain uh, historical documents absolutely are required to be taught. And one of them 
is Martin Luther King's uh, letters from letter from the Birmingham jail. I think that's a great document to ask, have students read. Um, but what I've also said is while you're required to read the document, this bill would suggest that you're not able to have a conversation about why Martin Luther King was in jail because you're not allowed to talk about racism or institutional racism um, because that is considered and deemed a controversial um, theory, idea, issue, and you can't talk about it in your classroom. Yeah. Um, thank you for, for that. Uh, but moving on to our next question, uh, another major piece of legislation that you're working on currently is Senate Bill 101, uh, and that bill would abolish the death penalty in the state of Ohio. I think this is a pretty big deal in this state because Governor DeWine postponed the executions of three prisoners until 2026. And from what it seems is that this bill does have bipartisan support. So and that's rare nowadays. So why do you why do you think that this bill has bipartisan support? And do you foresee this passing both chambers and then being signed into law? Well, there's a couple of reasons why I think at this moment in time there there is bipartisan support. We've been building up to it. Um, so every time I've introduced the bill since 2011, when I came to the House, people prior to me have, have been introducing an end to the death penalty um, for many years before that. Uh, but the difference right now, as I said, we've been we've been sort of uh, building gradually on um, increasing the number of uh, bipartisan support that the bill has right now in the Senate. There are 12 members that have co-signed, signed on to the bill. There's the lead sponsor and I. Um, so my lead sponsor, joint sponsor is um, is Steve Huffman. Senator Huffman and I um, are leading the charge. But then there's a total of 12 on the bill altogether, five Republicans, seven Democrats. And part of the reason is, as some of them have talked about to the media uh, they've indicated that they have various reasons why they're uh, they've signed on to the bill. Some because of the fact that we have eleven uh, exonerees in the state of Ohio, and so it means for every I think five or six people that are have been executed or have been um, have been sentenced with the death penalty, there's at least one person that was innocent. That's stunning. Um, and that should give everyone pause because this is a state sanctioned execution should never be wrong. And what we're finding out is it has been wrong. It is wrong. What we don't know is how many people were actually executed by the state of Ohio that indeed were innocent. What we know is we have 11 exonerees who are now free to live. Some of them had had been in jail for 20 plus years. Um, so if we ever get it wrong, we shouldn't do it. Uh, the other thing is the drugs. We have a, a formula uh, for how to have the execution occur. And the manufacturers of the drugs that are used in in this are saying, you can't use our you can't use our drugs. 
they created they they um, created those drugs to save lives, and they do not want their drugs used to end a life intentionally like this. So um, there's a reason we cannot do we cannot even perform the execution. Um, some folks say and point to the costliness of it all. It's very expensive especially with the appeal process being what it is, it's expensive to pursue a death sentence to begin with. And what we find is the more affluent counties um, are the ones that pursue these. It's also um, been shown to be used disproportionately against people of color. Um, and so some people, that's the reason. Some of my colleagues who identify as pro-life also believe it goes against their their moral beliefs. I'm a person who believes in the uh, value and value the dignity and worth of everyone and believes that everyone should have the opportunity for redemption. And so it goes against my moral beliefs as well. Um, there are all so there are all kinds of reasons. I think the reason why we see so such this bipartisan group is we've been talking to each other and um, over the years. And so um, building a strong coalition of legislators that is at this point in time uh, against the death penalty wants to see it end, um, I think is, is very powerful. It helps that we have an unofficial moratorium right now. That helps a lot. The governor has said, mm -mm, we're not gonna do it. And you know what? He's right. Uh, to be able to to say that as well. I appreciate that about about him. So we're going to move to another piece of legislation you're working on. Um, Senate Bill 76, which would levy taxes on landlords. Ah. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Like what spurred that idea? Uh, and do you think that that'll also have bipartisan support and things like that? Well, it does. It does have. Actually, this is a bill that my joint sponsor, uh, Bill Blessing, uh, came to me and said, you know, I know you're concerned about affordable housing. I'm concerned about it. And I'm also concerned about um, predatory um, companies that buy up large number of single family homes, turn them into rental properties, maybe in perpetuity. And what that does to a community, it destroys, um, you know, it, and not that rental is bad, but they, the companies often then um, are absentee. It's difficult to even find out who is responsible for the property. The, the people living in these places will say, this isn't the best situation because I have an absentee landlord, some mega company that I don't even know how to get in touch with. If I need something fixed, can't find them. The community, um, the community, the municipalities can't locate these people to be responsible for their properties. It's a real problem. So um, he had an idea, which was to levy large uh, taxes, if you will, on folks who buy up these large groups of property. They have to have more than 150 single family homes owned by their company, even to begin with. Um, look, at the end of the day, the the support, we're a bipartisan, so we're a Democrat and a Republican on the bill. 
Um, at the end of the day, what we expect, there are transparency elements in the bill that um, require documentation of who owns the property. And I will tell you that the levies, these taxes against property owners with having a bunch of properties is probably not going to pass. But what we're hopeful will pass is the transparency piece of it so that every community would be able to see a document that says, here's the property, here's the owner of this property, whether it's company X, Y, or Z, or an individual, and here's the phone number and the contact for that person should something go wrong with the property, should someone need to be able to contact that property. And sometimes coming out with something extreme uh, like this bill has really lent itself to some great conversations. We got people's attention. Broadly speaking, and this is, I would, I think Hale and I would both agree, this is quite an understatement. Uh, districts in this state are a little wonky, uh, the way they've been drawn for decade, for about a decade now. Um, and the GOP maintains a huge majority in both the state house and the state senate. Um, so, what steps are taken by you and uh, the caucus to ensure that bipartisan legislation is being passed? Okay, so there's a lot in there. <laughs> so first of all, yes, definitely gerrymandered districts. Um, and it and it has been a little over a decade. The last decades, um, districts were gerrymandered, but nothing like what we have right now. Um, mm. So, well, I gave you a few examples uh, right off the bat of um, of of legislation that we work on together that does have bipartisan support. Um, and certainly, there's a look. We, um, especially in the Senate, I I feel like I've passed more legislation in the Senate than I probably did in the House. Although I passed some some really important legislation in the house as well um but what what happens is um we listen to each other i mean i think i think that's that's part of what's really important and over a course of time you start hearing where you have connections and where you have agreements on specific issues or bills i pay attention to how people vote what they say when when they're on the floor what did they say in committee about um, what they support and where their line in the sand is of, of not supporting something? Um, the more legislators know each other and develop relationships with each other, the easier it is to work in a bipartisan fashion. It's my, I came to the legislature to get work done uh, for my the people in my district that I represent but also for the people in the state of Ohio. And so I um, go into every debate, conversation, thought about legislation that I'm bringing forward, um, thinking about who might agree with me on this, um, who do I need to talk to, and and then um, we'll go from there. So you know, I went through a process of talking to every every single legislator 
in the in the on the Democrat side and on the Republican side, I had a conversation with uh, before they came on as co-sponsors on the death penalty, for example. Um, some of those legislators, especially my Republican colleagues, we've been talking for years about this. Um, and I really value the conversations that we have. Um, you also have to be able to be a bit of a, um, you have to be well grounded, I guess, in, in your own belief system, your own um, priorities, and be willing to come together with another legislator on one issue, knowing that there might be something else next week or tomorrow that you are totally at opposite ends with. And it can't be personal. It has to be about the legislation. It has to be about um, the policy and not be personal. I mean, I think for me, it's the only way I've been able to do any of this. I think that's a, I'm glad you like mentioned um, that because we, me and Kale are pretty open about our own partisan beliefs, but I think viewing, you know, Republicans in the legislature other elected officials as they're they're just people too they're sent there because they would just want to do what's best for their constituents in their districts and i think that's an important perspective that every legislator should take getting to know each other not based off of r or d but because they're people too that are sent there to do a job because they're doing what they think is right ultimately whether you agree with it or not but Absolutely. And, you know, in the in the state legislature, as well as in Congress, that used to be the norm. Mm -hmm. People would socialize um, in Congress. Most Congress people 20 years ago, they lived in Washington. They moved their families to Washington. So they would they would socialize with each other across party line. That doesn't happen anymore in Washington. And unfortunately, with term limits, what happened in Ohio is because there's such a churn of new members and it's hard to keep track, it's hard to develop relationships, which also means it's it's hard to establish those relationships. You have to be intentional about it and you have to really work at it because it can't be a one thing. And it's really, really important to frame everything when we have a debate. And and look, we have heated, heated debates. I feel very strongly about Senate Bill 83. I think it's a terrible piece of legislation. But all of my comments on the floor were about the legislation and not about the person carrying it. And I have to you know, I have to separate them. And I think we do that more often than people realize, because when we work together to pass things, budgets, um, you know, all kinds of other uh, policy issues, it doesn't get a headline. It's just a footnote 
right? And so, you know, the blood and guts is the stuff <laughs> that gets the most attention most of the time. I, I'm I'm glad you brought up the the fact that that wasn't the case. Like people not seeing each other as people was not the case a couple decades ago or even a decade ago. But um, I I also appreciate the fact that you talked about the fact that you will be disagreeing with people and agreeing with people all the time. So that being said, um, give us a couple comments, whatever you are willing and able to say about the passage of SJR two in the Senate and then subsequently the House. Oh, sure. Well, um, you know, there we are again. Um, you know, I I uh, spoke at a at a dinner the other night and I said, um, you know, right now, sometimes it feels like we are living out um, the realities of <clears throat> two different novels, George Orwell's 1984, which I already mentioned, and which was written in the 40s, actually. And then uh, Margaret Atwood's Handmaiden's Tale, which was written in 1985, by the way, which is kind of interesting. You know, on one hand, George Orwell, we have, you know, word speak and authoritarian rule. And Margaret Atwood, we have forced pregnancy, authoritarian rule. And um, how interesting that we find ourselves in this time where something like SJR2 <clears throat> passes, which calls for an August election, months after the Republican majority had said August elections are a terrible idea and we should not do them at all, except in very special narrow circumstances, which was not described as the reasons for this August election. Um, so that's one. SJR2 also uh, further goes to take away the voice. I think it's incredible. It's censorship and it's silencing the voice of the people. In the state of Ohio, we have the ability for referendum, a citizens-led referendum to amend into the Constitution um, issues when the people in the state disagree with legislators and with um, with the policymakers, and it's their ability to push back and to say, or to advance something that they say, uh, the citizens say, we believe this should be the law of the land and we're gonna make it so. Um, so they change the rules in midstream, because right, and there's no, it's no denying right now, people today, are going out and collecting signatures to put reproductive rights on the ballot in November um, and embed into the Constitution the right of bodily autonomy for all Ohioans and the right, which includes the right to abortion and the right to, to make decisions about one's body. Um, the Republican majority has been very clear that you know, they want to stop that. They do not want that to advance. So they've put forward an August election and they've changed the bar. Right now, the bar to pass a citizen-led initiative to embed something into the constitution is 50 plus one. SJR2 would take it to 60%. There are very few 
referendums that pass with 60% of the vote. So it's a high bar. And then they went one step further. They said, okay, right now you need to get signatures from 44 out of the 88 counties. SJR2 says you have to get signatures from every county, all 88. Counties are all different sizes. So that becomes a real challenge. Um, and then the third thing that it does is there's a period of time we call the cure period where signatures are turned in and there's an opportunity to turn in more signatures if an initiative um, falls below um, what they've turned in, valid signatures. They have like another week to be able to do that. This takes that away. If you don't get it right the first time you're done. Now, the real irony to this, back to George Orwell and doublespeak, is that uh, the Republican majority from the very beginning said, the reason why we're doing all this, yes, it's about the abortion uh, issue today, but you know, we want to stop outside interests from coming and spending money in Ohio and putting these initiatives on the ballot. Well, isn't it ironic and interesting that there is millions of dollars coming into the state of Ohio from outside interests to push this ballot, to push for this SJR2 in August. And in fact, they're already on the airwaves pushing back against the reproductive rights petition. It's just, you can't make this stuff up. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. So that's where we're at right now. Um, it's a bad, it's bad. And not only is it bad form, but it's also bad. It's bad for the people of Ohio. It's bad for our democracy. In a democracy, people's voices need to count. Um, one person, one vote is what our our country was was built on. Those are foundation beliefs, foundational beliefs of our country. And right now, um, it is being challenged in a way that we haven't seen in a really long time. So we've been we've been doing uh, as policy wonk. We've been doing some some uh, organizing on the ground against against this thing. So it, it's good to see that some of our efforts reflect the efforts that ele our elected officials are are kind of going through. So we have roughly fifteen minutes left in our in our show here. Okay. So we're gonna go into maybe kind of the last question. Mm -hmm. Um. So we're we're not going to sugarcoat it. <laughs> Politics are very toxic in in 2023. Um, so, what advice would you have for young folk like us in navigating the political world? And this is a question that I asked uh, Senator uh, Shuring mm -hmm. not too long ago, and and he he focused on media. So, would you be able to give us <laughs> some 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 pointers on? media. Okay. Well, I, first of all, Senator Schering is one of my favorite uh, legislators um, that I get to work with, who is one of my colleagues across the aisle. Um, there's a lot of things that we agree on and we actually enjoy, we have been able to have the opportunity to get to know each other. Um, media as it applies to getting involved in politics. Is that what you're asking? Yep. Well, I have always talked to my staff, uh, both on the policy side and the political side, 
to always think about anything that comes out of either my office or that goes out into the world as a representation of myself, my opinions, my issues, whether it's on social media or it's a press release or a video, whatever it is, um, that we have to be not just respectful, but we also have to think about the fact that consider it out there forever. Um, and that if you put it out there, imagine before you push the button, think about what it would look like, and especially for people of my generation, on the front page of a national publication. It was going to last a long time. Millions of people are going to see it. Does that really represent you well? And maybe that's the only thing someone will ever see of you and see your name attached to or your face or your likeness attached to. Is that what you want to project? Is that really what you want to put out there? And I think it, I think it's important to really think about the consequences of putting things out into the media. Um, as far as working with the media, I have also tried to train my staff on both sides to be responsive to the media. I, you know, um, the media is the third estate. We need people reporting and talking. What you're doing here with this podcast is incredibly important because if people, we want people to be critical thinkers. I don't want somebody to just, just to decide because I have letters behind my name or I have a political uh, affiliation that they should just agree with everything I say. Um, I don't agree with everything all Democrats say or do, but I, we want people to be, I want people to be in, I want them to vote, but I want them to be informed voters and be critical thinkers and really think about what you're hearing people say. Don't believe the first thing that you see on something, check it out, find out if there's sources to really back something up. Um, I, I think it's very dangerous to retweet or to send something out without really knowing, uh, first of all, is it real? And, it, and it's getting harder and harder to find out whether something has an original origin to a person, uh, and not just, you know, some bot somewhere creating something. So it's important, but it's important because the minute you put it out there, even if you're retweeting now, now it's attached to you. And again, attached to you could be forever. Uh, just because you you uh, delete somewhere doesn't mean that 10 people haven't picked it up already. And so I just think it's really important to think about what it is you're trying to accomplish too. Um, are you trying to just blow everything up or are you actually trying to um, add to the conversation, educate people, um, add to add to the information that's out there so that people really do think in depth about things. I think sometimes we, and I'm guilty of this myself, we move so fast. Everything comes at us in, in sound bites and little bits and we have to process quick. We're asked to respond, respond all the time. We need to take a deep breath um, before we respond and really get get our information straight, um, think about 
what it is we really want to convey before we get out there. There have been, I've written press releases we've never sent. Um, I've written, I've written texts to people I've never sent um, or tweets or, you know, posts on, on Instagram. I mean, it's, it's, you just really got to think before you put it out there, I think. Awesome. So that wraps up our, our questions, I guess. So Joe, do you have anything else for, for the Senator? I can't really think of anything. Um, just thank you for talking with us today. Um, hopefully sometime in the future, we can figure out our wonky quote unquote, uh, electoral districts in the state. So, <laughs> Oh, that'll be fun. That'll be fun. Yeah. We're do that too. I mean, I think the most important thing, if I, I, again, I really appreciate you asking these thoughtful questions. Um, I hope I, I'm a policy nerd, so I appreciate your wonkiness. Um, I, I really want people to, first of all, be registered and vote and educate yourself about the issues, about the people that you're voting for. Um, and, and make it a habit to vote every election. Uh, one of the things that we haven't done well in this country is get people regular cycle. <clears throat> Some people think, you know, you're just four years and that's it. So um, I think that's important. The other thing is for young people, especially, don't you don't have to wait so long uh, before you stick your toe in and participate and if you think you're ready to run, go for it. If you think you can do this job, any of these jobs on the local level, at the state level, um, and you have something to bring to it that you don't see being offered or you think you could do it better, go for it. Run. Excellent advice. Very, yeah. very excellent advice. Because, Joe, I don't know if you want to share with everybody, but you ran for an office once. I did. I ran. Uh, I ran for school board in Menor uh, back oh, in 2019. So before things kind of got uh, crazy, but it was um, it was a good experience. You know, talking to the community and also mm -hmm. trying to um, get a get a gauge of what people cared about, what mm -hmm. just people in the people in Menor cared about, but also parents talking to students, former students, and seeing what what what's the best thing to do to help people in the city so good good that's great well, well we're about you. yep we're about out of time here so we'll let you get back to the rest of your monday evening <laughs> so i get to is... pack i get to pack to go down to columbus tomorrow and stay there for a couple of days so mm. thanks for I, thanks for having me though i live here in columbus so we're happy to have you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much. Keep up thank the good you. work. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Yep. So we just got off of the Zoom call with Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio. She represents up by Cleveland State's campus and Lakewood and the surrounding areas at the uh, mm -hmm. in the Ohio Senate. So, Joe, what, what, how did that feel talking to yet another elected official on the Policy Wonk podcast? I so I actually didn't know that she introduced the I think it was Senate Bill 73 or 72 the one that 
uh, levies those taxes against corporate landlords. 76, but yeah. Yeah, <laughs> numbers. Um, that it, It's an issue that I don't think people really talk about enough, especially I live downtown. I have a corporate land, landlord, but I live in a, mm-hmm. I live in a high rise. But you are seeing more corporate entities. I think Zillow might be one of them that is buying up single family homes and renting them out maybe forever. And that's one, jacking up the price of um, housing. It's also depleting the housing stock. So even if you wanted to buy a house, if you had enough money to, you can't because all these corporate companies are leasing, they're they're renting them. They're not selling them. Right. Uh, And two, I think... I think it's important to have the conversation about what the government can do to deal with the price of housing, because it's already illegal for cities to uh, pass rent control measures in this state because our super our uh, near supermajority legislator uh, banned that a few years ago. So seeing legislation come out of the state house to actually address this issue is Hope, hope it makes me hopeful. I hope it passes and it has bipartisan support. So, and, and what from my experience at the state house uh, about a month ago, um, it's nice talking to Republican conservative legislators that also care about urbanites and care about, yeah, I, I, the, 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 the senators I talked to, they were, they were concerned about how certain laws are written and how they would benefit wealthy suburban neighborhoods rather than maybe like low income areas or um, places where there's like predominantly section eight housing. It's, it's refreshing knowing that there's at least some people who identify as conservative, who are part of the Republican party um, that work at the state house who share concerns over the same issues that I do it's just maybe the the process on how we solve these problems is different and i'm i'm glad that that the minority leader brought that up i'm also glad that she is a self-described policy wonk as well so she is a policy wonk that is quite (laughs) quite fun but it's it is nice having more uh elected officials on the show to talk to us um especially about Mm -hmm. policy um because we are policy wonks just like the minority leader said we're wonky. She's wonky. But I'm looking forward to watching the the pieces of legislation that we talked about today work its way through the legislature. And uh, hopefully we have her back on at some point. Yeah, me too. I'm Like you said, I always like having elected officials on to actually talk about what's going on in Columbus rather than just reading about it in the news or seeing it on Twitter. So it's it's it we learn a lot and hopefully the people who watch this listen to this they learn a lot so yeah but that's all i had joe anything else that's all i got yeah that's all i have for today so thank you for listening and we'll see you next time on the policy wonk podcast